chapter 1. And uh, if you need a Bible to follow along with us tonight, just lift up your hand and the ushers will uh, quickly drop one off to you so that you can follow along in our study. We're in chapter 1, and we'll pick up verse 9 and read through verse 13. John writes, and he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. When a child is born, did you know that that child has absolutely no idea what just happened to it? It knows nothing about the world that it was just born into. It has no drive or ambition to become something, thinking about future potential and all the rest. Essentially, that child is uninformed and unconcerned about the meaning of life and what it's all about. Nevertheless, it has a pulse, it's breathing, it's alive. A child's been born. Now that child will ultimately grow and learn. It will develop quite rapidly and it will change. And that child as it grows will experience all of the common phases and stages of life on planet earth. It will adapt and assimilate with the family that it's born into and the culture and the society that it is growing up within. But someday, after all of that growth and development and all of the experience and assimilation and the phases and stages of life, at some point the question will arise in the mind of that living soul, why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What's this all about? And at that point, though life will go on and things will continue, that will become the issue. There will be a vacuum inside the soul, inside the heart of that human being that is empty as long as that question goes unanswered. What is the purpose for all of this? The same thing is true when a person is born again. That person essentially has no idea what just happened to them, even though they might think that they do. Even though they made a decision and prayed a prayer, essentially they know nothing. They know nothing about this kingdom that they've been born into. 
They have no drive or ambition to become something in this kingdom. They are essentially uninformed and perhaps unconcerned about the meaning of this new life and what it's all about. Except, of course, they they know they want to go to heaven and that they need a savior. Nevertheless, they've given their life over to Christ and therefore they are alive. They've been born again. And that Christian, that newborn baby Christian, will grow and learn, develop and change, and experience all of the common stages and phases of spiritual growth. You know, they'll go through that excitement and zeal portion of their Christian walk. They'll go through that knowledge and complexity stage when, you know, they're trying to figure everything out. They'll travel through the plains of legalism and holier-than-thou, you know, and pharisaical whatnot, you know. And perhaps they'll land someday on stable ground and they'll discover their gifts and serve the Lord and grow to be mature Christians. However, at some point, someday, after all of that adjustment and all of that growth takes place, And after all of the failed attempts to try to find life in all of the various aspects of what we call Christianity, the question will arise in the mind of that newborn, at this point, old-born Christian, what is this all about? And what's the purpose of the Christian life? And at that point, nothing else will matter. This pattern and progression of this Christian life is common to all as we read it in Scripture. And the common conclusion that all come to when they are posed with that question in their spiritual life is, what is this all about? I've been walking with the Lord for some time. I've been serving Him. I've been doing all of this and that. But there still seems like there's something more. There's something greater. There's a depth that is knocking on my heart and I can't quite comprehend what it is. And the answer that they all come to as they realize what is the purpose and what is it all about is that it's simply just to know Him. It's to know God. To have a real, not the cliched religious answer of a relationship with God. You know, it's not religion, it's a relationship. No, but I want to know Him. I want to know who He is. I want to taste of His substance. I want to experience His reality. I want to be filled with His fullness. That's what life is all about. That's why I've been saved. That's what I've been called unto. It was this that drove Abraham to be the man of the tent and the altar that we read about in the book of Genesis. A man who's just passing through this world and yet deeply hungering and desiring to know and be known of this God. So much so that he became the friend of God. This is what drove Jacob to wrestle all night long with the Lord. After receiving and experiencing everything that this world has to offer, he came to a point where he wrestled with God all night long and came to a point when he said, Tell me, what is your name? Who are you? I want to know you. What is this all about? And I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he had been blessed with everything physically that can be imagined. He was a man of great wealth at that time. The blessing that he was seeking after was not something on an earthly plane, but rather, I want to know you. I want to know this God that has called me into this relationship. 
It's what drove David to the depths that we read about in the Psalms as he cried out unto the Lord constantly throughout his life and sought to know him in a more meaningful and richer way. It's what caused the great Apostle Paul to utter perhaps some of the most challenging words in all of the Bible that he said to the Philippians in chapter 3. In verse 7 he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God through faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. Paul said, it doesn't matter what I am, or where I've been, or what I have. I'll give it all up if I could just know Him. Because it's the only place that life is truly found. It's the only place where any real blessing, or any real substance of anything lasting exists. Is in knowing Him. I want to know Him. See, it isn't our church attendance, or our ministry schedule. Or the amount of books, Christian books that we've read. Or the amount of religious duties that we do that make us Christians. It isn't the t-shirts or the bumper stickers or the affiliations or the history or the family that we've been born into. None of that is what makes us Christians at all. And the quality of our Christian depth is not measured by our prosperity or how good we've got it, or if we're being used by God and living a fruitful life, none of that matters, what we have. But rather, the only thing that really measures the quality of our Christianity is how much we've experienced the revelation of Jesus Christ. To know Him in a real and living way. To be able to say, He is my Lord and my God. He's the everlasting God because that's what He has been as revealed to me. He's God my provider, not because he showed that to Abraham, but because I've demonstrated he's shown me in my own life, and he's mine. And that's the quality, that's the depths of our Christianity. To what extent have the things that Scripture says about God become yours and mine? That's what Christianity is all about. It's not just because Abraham or David or Joseph or Paul have experienced it, but it's because we've experienced it. We've tasted it of ourselves. But how is God found in this way? Where is God to be found in this way? How does this happen that we become those people that experience this type of thing? Because I personally, I can't speak for you, but I personally want to experience God in this way. I want to know Him in this way. But how? And I wonder as I consider what it must have been like for Jacob as he was fleeing from his brother Esau and not knowing what would become of him and as he laid out under the stars in that dark night and he put his head upon that rock. And all of a sudden the vision opened up and he saw this ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending and then he heard a voice and God was revealed to him there in that place and I wonder what was it like to be Jacob at that time? Where God went from being the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac to becoming the God of Jacob. 
who he is to me, what he is showing to me. What was it like to be Moses as God tucked him into the cleft of the rock and said, you can't see my face and live, but I'll let my hinder parts pass by and I'll declare the name of the Lord to you. And as he sat there in the cleft and the wind passed by and the glory, the hinder part of the glory of God shone and the Lord spoke to him and he said, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. And he declared his name before him. What was it like there as God revealed himself to Moses in that way? What was it like to be Solomon? Just having offered a thousand burnt offerings and being exhausted falls into a sleep and God comes to him in a dream and he says, Solomon, what is it that you would ask of me? And to have that conversation, that interaction with God where he says, God, I'm just a youth and I don't know how to go in and out amongst this great people of yours. God, give me wisdom and teach me how to be a wise judge over your people. And God to respond and say, Solomon, because you have asked for this thing, I will not only give it to you, but I will also give you that which you didn't ask for. And how God revealed himself to Solomon there in that time. What was it like for Hagar, this slave woman, this Egyptian bondmaid? And she was there in the desert waiting for her son to die and for God to come to her and reveal to her a well there in the desert. And for her to call upon the name of the Lord, the God who sees and the God who hears me. What was it like for Paul on the road to Damascus? As the light shined round about him brighter than the noonday sun. And he heard a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And as Paul responded, he said, who are you, Lord? And for him to say, I am Jesus. What was it like to be them in those times? I remember myself being younger in the Lord. I used to read the biographies of, you know, the great men of the church in times of old. And I remember reading about how God met with Charles Finney as he threw a couple of logs on the fire and set his heart to seek the Lord. And before he knew it, God was so overwhelming him with his love that his own words are that he felt as though God was overflowing him with torrents and torrents of liquid love. And at the time that he next realized that those logs that he had just freshly thrown upon the fire were all burned out and there was nothing left. And yet to him it seemed as though only a couple of seconds had gone by. I remember reading about D.L. Moody and how he was exhorted by a couple of elderly ladies in his church that told him to honor the Holy Spirit. And he went into his room there in, in the city of Chicago and he said, I'm not coming out of this room until you meet with me, Lord. And it took two days and after two days, God met with him in a powerful way and revealed himself to him and transformed the scope of the rest of his life. And I remember myself saying, I want that for me. So I threw a couple of logs on the fire and I set my heart to seek the Lord. God, I want the torrents of liquid love. But those seconds turned into minutes, into hours, and the logs burned down, and there was no torrents. I remember locking myself in the room and saying, God, I'm not coming out until I'm hungry. I mean, until you meet me. <laughs> and yet God didn't meet with me in those things. And I said, why, God? And why? I know I'm not worthy. I can't join the, 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 the list with these men, but why? And the still, small voice whispers back, and he says, because I don't want to have their relationship with you. I want to have my relationship with you. And I'll reveal myself to you. And God wants to reveal himself to us. What I'm saying to you is that God wants to reveal himself to you. 
But where is he found? And how does that happen? There's a couple of things in verses 9 through 13 here of the book of Revelation that may help us discover an answer to that question. John describes for us his situation at the time he received revelation of Jesus to himself personally. And there's some things here in this text that I have found to be true in my own life concerning how and when God shows himself. First of all, John tells us right off the bat in verse 9 that revelation comes in tribulation. Verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now I shared with you last week that at the time that John was writing this, he was probably over 90 years old. That Domitian was the emperor of Rome at this time. And that just like Nero, his predecessor, he was a maniacal Christian killer. He sought unsuccessfully to boil John, the apostle John, in a cauldron of boiling oil in a Colosseum in Ephesus. And yet John, being preserved by God miraculously, survived this deep fried dip into that cauldron of boiling oil. And because he couldn't be killed, Domitian had him exiled to the island of Patmos where he would be in isolation. Where he'd no longer be a threat to the stability and the tyranny of Rome. Where he would never be able to preach or speak to anyone else. Believe me, to put a preacher in isolation, that's tribulation. And that's what John says, I was in tribulation in the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and because of my testimony of Jesus Christ. And it was in this time of interruption when his life was interrupted, this time of isolation when he was placed in that island apart from any other soul, this time of separation, it was then that Jesus came and gave to him revelation of himself. I believe that if we could quantify our time, we would find, discover, that much of what we do, and much of what we give our our thoughts to, is aimed at making life easier for ourselves. Isn't it? I mean, we purchase and use appliances that promise to make our lives easier. I saw a TV commercial during the football games this past weekend that said, imagine a car that drives and parks itself. And I'm going, how much lazier can we get? I mean, you know, back in the days when people walk, you know, imagine not having to walk. You know, and now, imagine a car that drives and parks itself, you know. And, and, we got, and, and I'm going, how lazy can we be? Then the next day, I'm driving down the Taconic Parkway, and I'm getting frustrated because I have to step on the brake to shut off my cruise control because someone in front of me is not going, oh, I can't believe I have to step on the brake, you know. We just want it so easy. Communication. You know, back in the day, it used to be that there would be a courier or a messenger. And then it became the U.S. Postal Service, and then telephone, and then email, and then Facebook, and now texting. You know, and it's just how much easier can it get to communicate and send messages across the waves? If you wanted to do research, you used to have to go to the library. You would have to open up an encyclopedia and actually use a glossary and an index if you wanted to find out information. 
Now you just get out your iPhone and you Google it. You know, you don't even have to get out of your seat. You're like, God, I'm really wondering about that. You know, okay. You look it up right there. We want it easy. About a year ago, the FDA was assessing the safety of a pill that you could take that would put your muscles into a state as though you had just worked out. You just take a pill and drink a glass of water, and 30 minutes later, you've been to the gym. I don't think they passed it. You know, I kind of followed that one for a while. I was like, hey, could cut down on a lot of time, you know, if I did it that way, you know. Why? Because we want it easy. We want results, but we don't want, we want the gain, but we don't want pain. We get excited anytime something comes around that promises to make life easier, but yet we dread the thought or the reality of anything that may make life more difficult. The paradox, the irony of that, is that you'd be hard-pressed as you search through the scriptures to find a time when God is found or revealed in times of ease, when things are going well. It was a most terrifying situation. With the death of his predecessor, he found himself in a position where the eyes of the whole nation were on him. And it couldn't have happened at the worst time. As the nation was facing the greatest battle that they had ever faced, the odds were highly stacked against them. And victory seemed impossible. The consequences of defeat were incalculable. And the stress of the situation caused that young leader to seek solace by a river. Three million plus people looking at him. How are we going to conquer this great city? And as this young, newly ordained leader was pacing there, musing over the situation, wading by this river to see what would happen, there was a rustling. And as he looked up, he saw a man fully arrayed in battle armor with his sword drawn approaching him. And startled and taken aback, this young man looked up and he quickly said, Are you for us or for our enemies? Whose side are you on? And the man looked at this young leader and he said, No. No, no, no. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? No. But as captain of the Lord's host am I now come. And then it says that the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host spoke to him and he said, remove your shoes from off your feet for the ground whereon you stand is holy ground. And that day, that young leader who was faced with that impossible situation, those stressful circumstances that he would never be able to figure out how he was going to navigate through, the consequences of which would throw off the course of his own life personally and of the nation in totality. That day as he stood there, he learned something. In the middle of that tribulation of the impossible situation, he learned that the battle wasn't his. It wasn't that he, God, was on his side, are you for us or for our enemies, but rather, he's the captain. It's not, is he on my side, it's, am I on his side? It wasn't Joshua's battle to fight. Joshua isn't the one that led the nation into that predicament, into that place of confusion. 
but rather it was the Lord that led them there. And so the Lord said, I am the captain of the host and I will defeat this army. Are you on my side? And it was in that time of tribulation that he realized it's not my battle. He's the captain. He's the one that's leading. He's the one that's in control and he never loses. And as you go through the scriptures, the pattern is clear. Abraham, when he was faced with the potential of losing his son, God met him there and revealed himself as the God who provides. When Joseph was abandoned and forsaken by his brothers and shipped off to Egypt, it was revealed to him that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all of the circumstances and affairs of this life. When Israel was oppressed by the Egyptians, they learned that God is mighty and that he's able to save even to the parting of the sea, leading them through on dry ground. When Jacob was fleeing as a refugee from his brother, he learned that God is relentless in his pursuit to grab our attention and get a hold of our lives. When Hannah cried out to the Lord in her barrenness, she learned that God is the one who hears and the God who cares. When Ruth found herself in a situation of unexpected widowhood, she learned that he's the God who heals and the God who redeems. When David was fleeing from Saul for over a decade in prolonged affliction, he learned that God is the great shepherd of his people who leads and wins. When Jeremiah was in prison, he learned it was revealed to him that God is the God whose heart is broken over the sin of his people. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den at the grasp of death, he learned that he's the God who preserves, who holds our breath and our life in his hands. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the burning fiery furnace, they learned that he's the God that delivers, both from death and the fire, but also from the shackles and the things that bind. When Hosea was losing his wife to prostitution, it was revealed to him how God's heart is broken over the prodigal, the person who turns away from him. When Nehemiah was overwhelmed in frustration at the amount of work that needed to be done and the impossibility of the task before him, he found out that he's the God who helps. He's the God that accomplishes what we can't. When Jonah was covered in whale vomit, he learned that God laughs, that he has a sense of humor. When the disciples who had been walking with Jesus for a couple of years at this time, who knew him well, intimately, when they were there on that boat, toiling in the storm, fearing that they would die. And as Jesus came walking to them out on the water and then held up his hands and stopped the storm with his very word, it tells us that they were astonished because he was one that had authority even over the wind and the waves. And even those that had walked with him for so long a time had their minds blown in the middle of their tribulation as more of his glory was revealed to them. He's revealed in our tribulations. The words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 after describing the depths of his own tribulation. In 2 Corinthians... I don't have a sticky. Chapter 12. Got to actually find it. The Apostle Paul writes these words, verses 8 through 10. He says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me, speaking of this this thorn in his flesh. 
And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Revelation comes in tribulation. What would cause Paul to say, I glory in my infirmities. I rejoice in my weaknesses, in my trials, in my persecutions. What do we want our story to be? I mean, I'll tell you what I want. I want it to be that I say, okay, well, I was on the beach. And it was sunny. And the waves were crashing. And God came to me. And he revealed himself to me in a powerful way there as I laid in the sand and felt the heat of the sun and heard the soothing sound of the crashing waves in the distance. Oh God, he revealed himself in such a powerful way. Or it was that long-awaited vacation. Oh, I was so expecting that God was just going to show up and be with me as I went. And so I went on that two-week-long cruise, you know, and God met me there. And I had this great experience as he revealed himself there on the shores of Bermuda. Or I wanted to be, you know, it was when I got that huge bonus. And that excellent promotion. And bought that gazillion room house you know and it was in that time of great prosperity that god just showed up in my life and revealed himself in such a powerful way he's the god who prospers you know i know that for us you know we always look forward to that time of the year when we go to the pastor's conference you know and everybody always says oh i'm praying that god speaks to me this year i'm praying that god reveals himself to me and so we go to the conference and we eat our gazillionth meal and then you go back in you know after the next meal like oh god speak to me during this one you know but it just doesn't work that way the truth is in the easy days god is not sought and god's rarely found and i confess that paul's words that he wrote to the Corinthians when he says, I glory in my infirmities. Those words make me tremble. And I'm not there yet. I haven't reached that point where I say, God, please bring tribulation so that I might know you in a more real and powerful way. Because the truth is, I don't want tribulation. But, even worse than not wanting tribulation would be to say, God, I'm content to know you from a distance. Please just keep things easy in my life. Keep everything normal and stable and just never let anything happen that's going to ruffle my feathers or make me have to trust you or make me have to cry out to you in desperation. Just don't make any of that happen and I'm content to be here. I have my salvation. I know where I'm going. And so you just keep everything smooth and I'll just know you like this. It's a much worse place to be than to say I don't want tribulation because at the end... You might say, I had it really good, and I had a real easy path, and it was paved with rose petals, and it smelled really good along the way. But you'll be empty at the end of it because you'll have missed the real purpose for your existence, which is just simply to know him in a fuller and richer way. And as much as I hate tribulation, there's something inside of me that cries out, what is it that these men have found that's so great and so glorious and so big? That they would say, I glory in my tribulations. I boast in my infirmities. I rejoice in my weaknesses because when I am weak, I am strong. What is it that they found?
And I fear missing that more than I fear the tribulation that might come on this earth. I don't want trials, but I do want Him. And I'm not telling you that the Christian life is a life of gloom. You know, that you can leave here and go, okay, God, do it. And you know, you brace. And you, if that's what it takes, you know, you... No, the bottom line is that tribulation is a given. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Both of those things can be good and bad. We all go through it all. The difference is, what do you gain from it? It's not a life of gloom. But tribulation has its place. And John, when he was in tribulation, received revelation. Don't gloom over tribulation. Glory in tribulation. And let it be an opportunity for Jesus to show up in your life and reveal himself to you. Second of all, revelation comes not only in tribulation, but also in adulation. Again, back in Revelation chapter 1, John goes on in verse 10 to say, I was in the Spirit... On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me the vo- uh, a great voice as of a trumpet. Revelation comes in adulation. One of the things that I'm always telling my kids is that there's two people living inside of them. First, of course, I have to ask them, do you believe in Jesus? And of course they say, yes, Dad, we believe in Jesus. Okay. Well, then there's two people that are living inside of you. Do you know who they are? And they always answer the same thing. God and Satan. And I say, no, 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 it's not God and Satan. Satan doesn't live inside of you because Satan and God don't share space. God doesn't let Satan live in the same house as him. Satan doesn't live inside of you if God lives inside of you. So who's the other person? Then they remember and they say, oh yeah, us. That's right, it's you. And what does God call you? What's your name to God? And they say, the flesh. I say, good, right, you're getting it. So there's two people living inside of you, I tell them. There is the flesh, which is you. And there is the Spirit, which is Jesus. And both of those two entities are alive within you at this time. The Apostle Paul illustrates this truth in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. There's a conflict that's going on inside of you, because the flesh is present, and the spirit is present at the same time. Well, Paul goes on to explain the personality of those two persons. In chapter 5, verse 20 of Galatians, he describes the flesh. Actually, verses 19 and 20. And he gives a whole list of things that are the attributes of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like, which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh is corrupt. It is rebellious against God. It is bent on self and selfishness. That is the flesh. Aren't you happy that that person lives inside of you? And that what God thinks about it. On the other hand, when you're saved, Jesus moves in. And the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And against these things, there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And so, verse 25, he concludes it by saying, If we live in the Spirit, then let us also walk in the Spirit. 
So all that to say that we have these two people living inside of us. There's the flesh and there is the spirit. Now, what I tell my kids and what I'm now telling you is that we have the choice which of those two people is going to have control at any given time. We get to choose which of those two states we'll live in. Now, if I'm going to live in the flesh, all I have to do in order to let the flesh rule in my life basically is nothing. It happens very naturally. I just give myself to whatever thoughts and whims come naturally. I start thinking about myself. I start groveling over the trials that I'm going through at work and the hard circumstances of my life. I begin to think about how much I don't like some of the things that are happening around me. You know, George is doing this, and the kids are doing that, and the house is doing this, and my car and uh, the job. You know, I start thinking about all the things I don't like. And I start to worry about the future and what's going to become of me. And I begin to complain about this thing and that thing. And then I begin to indulge the flesh to try to bring some comfort to this grieving awfulness that I'm going through. Well, guess what happens? Very soon I find myself very much in the flesh. Living in the flesh. Operating in the flesh. There's a misery. There's an emptiness. There's a a vacuum of self-pity that begins to happen and create. And it works quite naturally and it's very effective. However, if... On the contrary to that, I take time apart. First thing is always the best thing because then it stays with you throughout the day. And I begin to reflect upon the goodness of God. And begin to out loud, begin to just declare His attributes and talk about His greatness. And worship and give praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To verbally ascribe greatness to Him. To humble myself before him. To lie on the floor with my face in the ground and just talk to him in adoration and in prayer and in praise. And to call upon the Lord in truth. What I find is that very soon I find myself in the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Operating in the Spirit. And that's what it's talking about here when John says that he was in the Spirit. It's what it means in Acts chapter 10 verse 10 when Peter says that he was in a trance. It actually uses that word trance. It says in Acts 10.10 that he became hungry and he would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And then in Acts 11.5, he he, goes over it again and he says that it happened to him while he was praying. He goes up on the housetop, he begins to pray, and what happens to him, he describes it using this word trance. Now, we think of trance as something very mystical, esoteric, hocus-pocus. You know, his eyes rolled back in his head, and all of a sudden, you know, there were swirls around, and this funny music started to play, and it was like he took something he wasn't supposed to take. You know, he's in a trance, you know, kind of a thing. But the word, if you translate the biblical word and give the definition, it means a throwing of the mind out of its normal state, or an alienation of mind. I like that definition. Listen to it again. A throwing of the mind out of its normal state. The same word that's used for trance is also translated in the New Testament as astonished or amazed. In Acts chapter 3, remember the guy who was begging for alms and he said, you know, give me your alms. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy gets healed. And the description of it in Acts chapter 3 
there uh, is that it says that they were filled with wonder and amazement. It's the same word when it says amazement, that they were in this trance or they were thrown into a different state of mind at the time that that happened. In Acts chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, Paul uses the same word in this context. He says that it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. But again, it's a throwing of the mind out of its normal state. And you know how it is. You know, you come to church, and the worship is just captivating, and you find yourself thrown out of your normal state. You're brought into the worship of God. Your mind feels like it's being washed and cleansed. Your whole outlook on life changes. You begin to see yourself in what you were an hour ago, and you're like, oh, what was I complaining about? As the Spirit of God just fills your heart and your soul and your mind. You're captivated by eternal things, the presence of God. And then you hear the word of God and your heart is spoken to, your mind is renewed, and you find yourself making resolutions. Do you do that? I do that. Oh, Lord, I just want to change. I, I just want these things to change within my life. And I don't want to do this anymore, God. And I know I just got to get, get out of the habit of doing that. And, and Lord, just change work in me. And then I wake up the next morning and I'm very much back in my normal state of mind. I say, what were all those resolutions I made? Well, I'm going to have to get around to those at some point. Maybe New Year's. I don't know where all the strength was that I had last night now, because now that I'm faced with it, and you see this battle taking place between the flesh and the spirit. We know how it is. Now, all of that about the trance and the spirit and the flesh, to say that John the Apostle received this revelation at a time when he says that he was in the spirit. In a time when he put forth the effort to be thrown out of his normal state of mind, and to press in to spiritual things for the sake that he might have fellowship with Jesus. And we all have the ability to do that at any time. Did you know that? That a trance, or astonishment, or amazement, or this walk in the spirit that we've been called into, is a choice that we have at any given time. Are we going to operate and move and live in the flesh? Or are we going to put forth the effort to be thrown out of that state of mind that we might reflect upon the glory of God and be captivated by spiritual things and live and walk in that realm. And what happens when we choose to live and walk in the Spirit is that God begins to reveal Himself to us in a powerful, in a living way. Over the course of the past couple of weeks, I've had several conversations with a lot of different people. And in those conversations, I've talked to some people who have kids that are wavering and walking away from the Christian faith. And it's a concern to them. It's a burden upon their heart. I've talked to people who are in financial difficulty. They find that their finances are faltering and things aren't going well for them in that arena. I've talked to other people who are having relationship issues. Either relationships are faltering or fumbling or things just aren't working out right in the realm of relationships. And I've talked to people to whom depression is looming. They feel despair rising with them and, and they have this battle over despair and depression within their life. And I've asked all of these people that I've had these conversations with the same question. Have you prayed? Have you prayed? And you know, you kind of get that like, you know, that slump 
You know, like, yeah, of course I've prayed. I was hoping that you would have like this magical answer, you know, and and that you would just like, you know, slap me in the forehead and it would go away or something like that. And and you're asking me if I've prayed. And I say, yeah, of course I've prayed. And I said, no, no, have you really prayed? Because, you know, I I read the Bible, and I'm reading about Saul, you know, King Saul in the Old Testament. And he was rebellious, he was stubborn, he was prideful, he did everything he could do to disqualify himself. And finally, when he got so, you know, messed up in his own mind, they didn't know what to do, he went and he consulted a witch, a psychic. And he said, I need some advice, because God isn't answering me. Listen. I need advice because God isn't answering me. And he went to a medium, something to come in between him and God. And he said, call up for me Samuel from the dead. And he sought counsel of Samuel. And he told Samuel these things. He said, God isn't answering my prayer. He's not answering me through the priest, either by Urim or Thummim or any other way that God has prescribed. God isn't helping me. That was the testimony of Saul out of his mouth. And he got in trouble for that and he dies. But listen to what God says about Samuel after he's gone. 1 Chronicles chapter 10 verses 13 and 14. It says, So Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. Listen verse 14. And inquired not of the Lord. Do you hear that? It says that he inquired not of the Lord. Wait a minute. Saul said that he had consulted the priest. That he had sought counsel at the Urim and the Thummim. That he had asked God for his answer. But yet God looked at what Saul called prayer. And he said, he didn't seek me. He didn't ask of me. He didn't wait for the answer or call upon me. Listen, church, I want to tell you something. The Bible says, God says out of his own mouth, he says, cry out to me and I will answer you. He says the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The Bible says that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And again in James it says that you have not because you ask not. Listen, his will for your life is not at all that your kids should be wavering. Or that they should be going after the things of the world. God's will for your life isn't at all that your finances should be faltering or that you at all should be on the brink of bankruptcy. God's will for your life is not at all that your relationship, your marriage, your partnership with your spouse of your youth should be breaking apart. That's not God's will for your life at all. Or that you should be in despair. In fact, Paul says rejoice. And again, he said, I say rejoice. That's the will of God for your life. But let me ask you, church, have you really sought God? Have you really asked him? I'm not talking about where you had a cup of coffee and you sat in a quiet room for a minute and said, God, could you please help with this? But listen, have you gotten on your face before the living God? Have you shoved your face into the ground and wet the fibers of the carpet with your spit because you begged God to move in the situation? Because I wonder if God would look at some of the things that we call prayer and say, they didn't seek me. Listen, church, cry out to God. Beg him to move in your situation. Beg him to turn your children around. 
and to bring them back to Him. Scream out for His deliverance. Because the Bible says that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And that they will not be ashamed. And He is not a liar. Call out to Him. Church, press in. Throw yourself out of your normal state of mind. Forget about your hunger or your comfort or your ambition or your goal and call upon the living God. And the Bible says that He will answer you. He will reveal Himself to you in the time that you give Him praise and adulation. Can't decide whether to go on or to Do the last two next week. (laughs) Revelation comes in submission. In verse 10. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice. As of a trumpet. Now, we know that as Christians, we are not bound to keep the Sabbath. That we know we're not under the law. And that when John tells us that when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that he, he's making plain speech that he took one day out of the seven during the week while he was there that was the Lord's. In which he paid special attention to seek the Lord. He, tell, he goes out of his way to say that it, I, I was seeking the Lord on the, the Lord's day. Now, this is not an issue of church attendance. It's not an issue of the law and separation and all that kind of thing that the Jews would look at it. But rather, it's a demonstration of what happens when you just do the things that you know that you're supposed to do. John knew That regardless of the law and the Sabbath and all of what that is, he knew that he was to take one day in seven where he was to focus on the Lord and give him time, to give him praise. And and that it was the Lord's day. It was separated apart for him. And he obeyed. See, he was on an island in isolation. He could do whatever he wanted. He could seek the Lord every day. And I'm certain that he did. But yet still he was aware that there was a day that was given to the Lord. And that was done in nothing else but in obedience and in submission to the ways of God. He submitted to the ways of God. Now listen. There are, and we're all, we are almost done. Don't get nervous. I see some people like strapping in their seatbelts like, oh, we're going to be here for a while, you know. <laughs> but there are only two types of people that you read about in the Bible. When you read the Bible and you just look at all the different people that are there, there are only two people. There are those of whom it says that the Lord was with him or her. And the Lord was with Jacob. And the Lord was with Abraham. And the Lord was with David. And the Lord looked upon Ruth. And the Lord was with them. And you read about these people that God was with them. And the other are the people that God was not with them. And those people may have had good lives, they may have prospered, they may have had peace, they might have had all kinds of things, but what they didn't have is that God was not with them. And there are two types of people in this church and in the world right now. There are people that God is with you, and there are people that God is not with you. Now let me tell you, you want to be one of the people of whom it says that God is with them. That's what you want. Because Anything else can happen to you in your life. But if you don't have that, you're headed for destruction. You want to have it said of you 
that God was with you. Therefore, you want to do things God's way. The Bible says that he honors those that honor him. If you call yourself a Christian, and yet you don't honor God by doing things the way that he says that they're to be done, then you can't with boldness say that God is with you. 1 Samuel 2.30, it says that he honors those who honor him, and those that despise him will be lightly esteemed. We all want God with us, but sometimes we don't want to do things God's ways. You know, we, we want God to be with us, but it's okay if I sleep with this person that I'm not married to. Listen, God's not with you. If you're not doing things God's way, then you can't say that God is with you. Well, I want God to be with me, but I'm holding on to this hatred in my heart towards someone, and I'm not going to let go with it. I'm going to carry this one to the grave. Listen, the Bible says, let no root of bitterness be found in you at all. Be found of him in peace. You want God to be with you. Yeah, I want God with me, but I'm going to get ahead. And to get ahead in today's world, you just have to cook the books a little bit you know you just there's no other way around it it is this deck is stacked against us listen do you want god with you because the bible says it's nothing it's too hard for him he's the god of all flesh what i'm saying to you church is that if you want god with you in your life then honor him and do what you know is right to do don't say i hope god will still be with me even though i'm bending in this area or compromising on this issue don't do it You want God with you. You say, well, I don't really care about that so much. You know, that's not really that important to me that God is with me. You know, I've got these things going and things are all right. And I sense his presence here and there. And and, and it's everything is fine. Everything is fine. Listen, there will be a day, I promise you, by the word of the Lord, that there will be a day when that will be the only thing that matters to you. Is that God is with you. Trials will come. Things will happen. And nothing else will matter to you that God is with you. But if God is with you, just do things the way you know you're supposed to do them. Submit. I've found personally that a disobedient heart is not failure to obey in a few big things as much as it is failure to obey in many small things. Have you found that to be true too? I have. Well, Lord, I'm not doing this and this and this and this. You know, the big one. I'm not smoking, drinking, chewing, you know, all this kind of stuff. But what about the small things? The attitudes of the heart. The work ethic. The complaining. All the rest. There's revelation and submission. In doing things the way God would have you to do them, you find, you see God. You experience Him in your life. And then finally, number four, and then we'll finish, wrap it up, is that there is revelation in the congregation. Actually, no, we just don't have time. Sorry. You can read ahead, verse 12. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He's there. It's important to him. But we have to close. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us, that you draw us apart. And that you care enough to tell us these things. And we know, Lord, that your great purpose in our lives is to reveal yourself to us. And that your will for us is that we experience you in a real and living way. And so, Father, tonight we make it our prayer. We ask you, Lord, that you would fill this place. That as we close this service and as we sing this song, Lord, you would turn our hearts so hard toward you. And that you would fill our lives so much with your presence. 
that you would bring us right now into that place where we would say, there is no other purpose and reason for me to be alive than to know you, Jesus. And so we ask you, Lord, please, fill us afresh. I pray for each person here. Lord, that whatever place that they're at in their Christian walk, no matter what circumstance they're in, in their natural life, Lord, that you would meet with them right there now. Lord, for those that are in dark tribulation, those that are in despair and in distress, and Lord, those maybe that have it easy and that are coasting, I just ask, Lord, that at the end of the line, there would be none here that would say, I missed it. I missed the whole purpose for my existence. So please, Father, I pray you'd pour out your Spirit. That you move in a powerful way in our midst. And that you would draw each of us close to you. Fill this place. You're the God who's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. You're the Lord who's intricately interested in every area of our lives. You're the Spirit that searches all things, the deep things. You're the one that knows the counsels of our hearts and that no motivation or thing can be hidden from you. You're altogether perfect in your purpose. And you're unfailing in your love. I pray, Lord, that even now your spirit would fall. That if there's any here tonight that don't know you personally, that have yet to give their lives over to you, that this would be their moment. That even now as they hear this prayer going forth, they would let go of the reins of their life and they would surrender to you and allow you to save their soul. I pray for those that are kicking against the goads, that are afraid to hand over complete control to you for fear of what might happen in them. That now at this point, they would see you as the Most High God. That you are the God who reigns in the kingdoms of men and you set over it whosoever you will. That there is nothing that happens to a single individual soul that isn't altogether happening according to your counsel. And I pray for the downcast, Lord, that they would find comfort and strength in you. God, you know what we need. You know what we need, God. And we need you. So fill us now. Overwhelm our hearts with your goodness and your love. Break the stubborn will. And let us see your salvation. Be magnified in this place. And open our eyes to your goodness and your glory. Let's stand and worship the Lord.